Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. And we're back. Welcome to episode 25 of Not Artificially Sweetened. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you spending some time with us, maybe on the move, on the road, at gym, on your commute to work. Doesn't matter. There are so many places you can join us listening to our episodes. We apologize sincerely for not being available last week. We had an unexpected and unavoidable issue which prevented us from coming to you last week, but we are back. With me as usual in studio is Dr. Stan Landau. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us again on our social media platforms of Spotify and Bullhorn. You can also find these podcasts on the Apple Podcast Network. If you enjoy listening to these podcasts, give us a like and share widely with your network. Thanks as always to our listeners and wider audience who continue to share with us their thoughts and questions at podcast at cdediabetes.coza. Michael, I must say that over the weeks that we have presented our podcast, we've focused on screening issues amongst people with type 2 diabetes and how very often in the setting of the clinical visit, we will bring up issues such as, have you had a mammogram? Have you had your prostate cancer screening done? And what's happened in the clinic over the last two weeks now since we last dropped our podcast is that we mustn't forget that there are a number of medical conditions that keep company with type 1 diabetes, and these are usually of the autoimmune type. So similar to the body attacking its own healthy pancreas tissue and resulting in a reduction and complete stoppage of insulin production, we see from time to time in patients with type 1 diabetes, underactive thyroid disease, we see celiac disease, rarely you can see parathyroid gland disease, and listeners might be familiar with the loss of skin pigmentation or a condition called vitiligo. And over the past couple of weeks, with deliberate screening of newly diagnosed young people with type 1 diabetes, the more we look for these conditions, the more we find it. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that it may be hard enough managing the initial diagnosis of diabetes and all of the emotions that go hand in hand with that condition. Mm -hmm. Now having to add on a second or sometimes third, or in two or three cases I look after, a fourth autoimmune condition that keep company with diabetes. And yeah, we look for it, we treat it. They do not have, by and large, the long-term complications that can be associated with suboptimally managed type 1 diabetes, but nonetheless are very important and ought to be considered in the day-to-day clinical running of a medical practice. Absolutely, Stan. One of my favorite topics. I don't have type 1 diabetes, but I do have celiac disease, so I understand the lifestyle implications of having this condition, a total avoidance of all wheat and gluten-containing products. So yeah, a favorite topic of mine, something that clinicians should be screening for on a regular basis with people who have type 1 diabetes. I'm glad you brought up the issue of the emotional responses to the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. This week, I wanted to highlight two books that we have to give away. We have 10 copies of each. They're written by very experienced clinical psychologist, Rosemary Flynn, and Rosemary is well known to many of us in the South African diabetes community. And she's written two books. They're not new books, but we have been talking about diabetes in a developmental perspective over the past few weeks. 
And one of the important components of age or stage-specific care is understanding the emotional responses of both the person with diabetes and of the parent to the diagnosis and the ongoing daily management of diabetes. And these two books, The Emotions of Children with Diabetes and The Emotions of Teenagers with Diabetes, may be just what you're looking for to provide a tool for you on your journey with this condition. The first one, Emotions of Children with Diabetes, is written specifically for parents, healthcare professionals, and anyone who's involved in the care of children with diabetes. The one for teenagers is actually aimed at teenagers who are trying to negotiate that transition to managing their diabetes independently of their parents and to understand their emotions and how to deal with them. These are fantastic books. They're not long, but they're beautifully presented, and we have 10 copies to give away. They normally retail for 150 rand for the children with diabetes and 200 rand for the teenagers with diabetes. We're giving them away free. If you would like a copy, please send an email to podcast at cdediabetes.co.za. If you are in Johannesburg, we can arrange for you to pick up a copy from our central office in Houghton, Johannesburg. Otherwise, for South African listeners, we can courier these to you at a cost of 100 rand. So you would need to send us a 100 rand deposit. We'll send you the bank details, but you will get the book for free. So nice giveaway we have this week. If you come into my office, you can see a very large library of textbooks and a whole host of books around diabetes. And Rosemary's book has been on that shelf really since the get-go, I think around about 2017. And it's extremely well-thumbed because it's something that's used in day-to-day clinical practice. Makes me think of my early childhood years. And I come from a family of avid gardeners. And for those South Africans who enjoyed gardening, there used to be a book called The Complete Guide to South African Gardening. Oh, yes. And perhaps many of us grew up with that. And uh, you know, I have images of that book having never moved off the shelf. Mm-hmm. And similarly to Rosemary's book, as I look around my office, it's great to have another extraordinary guest join us for our podcast today. This week is David Tiltman. He is the CEO of Africa Media Entertainment Limited, a listed public company in South Africa. Welcome, David. Thank you, Doctor. Good to be on the show this morning. Michael, I've known David for a number of years. As always, in respect to our guests, we let them introduce themselves. And David, you certainly have a voice for radio, that smooth, melodious voice. (laughs) Again, I've brought up my parents and their gardening copies. Hey, They never stopped talking about LM radio back in the day. And maybe you have a story or two about the old LM radio uh, as the forerunner to 702, having grown up in the early 80s. But welcome nonetheless. David, I want to be very interested to hear about uh, your journey in media, because at the end of the day, our podcast is a form of media. I want to hear through the course of our podcast about how media has changed and the impact of social media. Thank you, Doc. Yeah, it's been quite a long journey. Obviously, uh, I'm 59 now and um, certainly started my professional radio career in um, 1989 at the SABC. But there was a short journey, obviously, before that. And one I certainly would recommend to some of the podcasters listening on this particular series. First of all, yeah, there was an attraction, I guess, like a moth to a flame when I was still at junior school. And whilst it wasn't LM radio in my childhood, it was Springbuck radio, definitely. And they did come to town. I lived in a rural town in the Eastern Cape called King Williamstown, which is about 40 minutes from East London. And Springbuck radio visited us for their annual Christmas fund week. And uh, I was hooked, addicted immediately. And realized there and then that I wanted to be a broadcaster one day, which I was never always going to be good at, but I did want to be the guy pressing the buttons and talking. And um, I think in 1977, 78, Capital Radio 
which was an independent station like 702 started on the wild coast. And because we lived in King, I was able to pick up capital on medium wave. You were probably in Johannesburg and you got 702. We got capital. And once again, it reinforced my journey. But trick, I went to Port Elizabeth on a first team hockey tour and I met up with some youngsters who I was living with their families for the week whilst I stayed in PE and their daughter was working on a campus radio station. So that was kind of the beginning of the radio journey, besides the fact that I was always spending my spare time pretending to be a broadcaster, commentating cricket in my bedroom or mixing music and the like. So, you know, music and, and, and broadcasting was in my blood. Varsity was a bit of a blur from a study perspective, but I certainly spent probably more time in the studio and the campus radio, learning the ropes for free and grasping everything I could on the future of radio. And I ended up running the station for a couple of years and when I left Varsity, I was given a certificate of service to the student community, which was literally like a, an honors award for student service. So really proud of that. Military service followed. Uh, wasn't very happy to be there <laughs> and ended up in Namibia where because I had kidney stone issues historically, I was forced to live in a city with a hospital. So the army couldn't send me to the border and I ended up in Namibia and in Vintuk. And it didn't take me long to get into the media unit. And before I knew it, I was reading news in Afrikaans weekly. And I got a show on the radio on Saturday nights, broadcasting across the network of the English service. And worked with legends from Springbok Radio, ironically, whilst I was in Namibia. Um, you might remember Nigel Kane from TV News and Clacky McKay from the old Springbok Breakfast with Donna. So it was a great learning experience. 89, I joined Radio Go and PE as a music compiler. I technically would have swept the floor to get in, but I got in as a music a compiler with a BCom degree, you know, but I wanted to be in radio and I think the rest is history. I, I moved along quite quickly, programming, headed up the station and was part of the sale in 96 from the new democracy. SABC sold six of their stations and Radio Go went from being a slightly commercial regional community broadcaster to a fully fledged commercial broadcaster and I was part of that process, became head of the business in 2000 and left there in 2018. At the top of Everest, unfortunately, I had to jettison myself off. I was promoted to CEO of the group that owns the radio station in PE. But I'd spent since 89 through to 2018 there, achieved everything, including station of the year in 2018. And luckily for me, I was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. So now the final piece is really living in Johannesburg. It's not the horrible city that everybody made it out to be, but that's the way Eastern Cape is see Johannesburg. I'm loving my stay in Joburg. I love the energy and the pace. And I've been fortunate to meet up with Dr. Lando over the years that I've been here, who's helped me through some difficult spaces in my life from a diabetes perspective. But yeah, running a listed company was never going to be easy. I got the phone call one Friday afternoon to say that they wanted me to come to Joburg. So it was an interesting move. But now that I'm here, loving it. And the last point is we've got a number of brands that we own or we sell. Nice. So we, we're really in the audio or radio space and definitely moving into the digital space soon. We have ownership of Algoa FM, which is in the Eastern and Western Cape. We've got OFM in Central South Africa. We've got a stake in Kaya FM in Joburg and Hot 1027 in Joburg. Then we've got a sales house and then we've got a business company called MoneyWeb that's largely based on digital and the internet, but uh, it's a powerful brand as well. So yeah, that's kind of my background. I mean, obviously I'd, I could talk for hours. It's been a great journey and I'm probably one of the few people in this world who really enjoys what he does when I wake up in the morning, can't wait to get to work. I love the industry, love the people and the passion.
if my kids were listening to this podcast, they tell you they love OFM. Great station. All the years you drive to Durban, you can start picking up OFM at Villiers. They learned if they could see these maize silos, then uh, you've crossed the Vaal River, that's OFM. <laughs> and it gets you through that long drive all the way through mm. Van Rennen, which interestingly enough is where you can pick up East Coast Radio. So this country of ours, you weave your way on these journeys and you could just get a totally different feel from this commercial hub mm. to ads on OFM, you know, so-and-so's clutch shop in Clarkstorp and a guy, Yuri Nell, who's selling firefighting equipment for farms. <laughs> I heard this past holiday when we drove down and that fun hasn't left me as we go. David, you said so many things that are analogous to the management of diabetes in the modern day. You said that in the early days, your experience was with a medium wave radio. I suppose for our younger audience here, that's an alien term, FM and medium wave. Sure. Uh, the independent radio stations, the coming together of larger corporates kind of feels like the management of diabetes over time, having moved from this more, dare I say, primitive approach to a much more sophisticated, elegant digital approach that we are pleased to use in diabetes now with continuous monitoring. You have identified as a person with type 2 diabetes. Has the diabetes journey changed in as much a revolutionary nature as it has for you in terms of the broadcasting industry? Um, yes, doctor. I mean, absolutely. I mean, the initial stages were largely undiagnosed. I had a ear infection that was recurring and the ENT was obviously working extensively to fix it and we just couldn't get to the bottom of it. And I, I did take the liberty, which is not my first preference, to get a second opinion at the time when I was living in PE. And the second ENT, one of his first questions was, was there any diabetes in my family? Which was quite a difficult question because my parents had largely kept their diabetes to themselves. And as kids growing up with the bad eating habits and being slightly obese, it was quite a surprise when I found out that both my mom and dad had type 2 diabetes. And it was crazy to think that I only found it out as an adult in my 30s. So we had the glucose test and I tested to pre-diabetes, which is something that I think a lot of people living with diabetes originally take comfort in the fact that they're only pre-diabetes. It's quite important immediately to take hold of the matter and to treat it seriously because I think I went through a phase where I kept leaning on the fact that it was pre-diabetes, pre-issues, pre-this, pre-that. And the medication obviously starts with limited amounts. And I was always literally, not in denial, but continued my journey largely thinking, oh, well, I can manage it with a few pills. Mm -hmm. But I mean, unfortunately, down the line, things changed. The biggest change for me has been the fact that I've been able to Obviously, uh, when I came to Joburg, working with the CDE clinic, and second of all, you know, we introduced me to the whole diabetes control techniques. We worked with dietitians and, you know, the fitness center at the time. And the biggest digital change was obviously the monitor. I hated pricking the finger. <laughs> That's probably not that painful. It was uh, really something that I tried to avoid. And so I was unfortunately not doing it as regularly as I would want to. And so when I got the option to go digital with the mechanism on my arm, I jumped at that. So I think that has been the biggest change in my life. But obviously the whole process has moved along quite extensively. And I'm one of those guys that have, I've got a thing at work where I always use it for the good, but it's called a shortcut to heaven. And I'm always looking for shortcuts to heaven <laughs> because I believe that someone's walked this journey before. Just give me an example. So the digital meter was definitely one of those shortcuts to heaven, but certainly there is no real shortcut to solving diabetes and it all lies with the individual patient. So you have to just become disciplined and at the end of the day, understand what your doctor's giving you, how he's treating you. Be fully part of that and never stop asking questions. But I did try 
try everything in the book to lose weight because it seemed like type 2 diabetes was always about lifestyle and weight and I was always overweight so I went through literally all the different pills injections and shakes <laughs> that one could take you know in order to find a quick shortcut to solving my problem and I should have just zipped my mouth a bit more and probably would have got to the solution quicker. I'm glad you brought up the concept of pre-diabetes, David. Many healthcare professionals do not realize the significance of it. And whilst it may not lead to the microvascular or capillary complications associated with diabetes, it certainly carries with it a double to quadrupled risk of cardiovascular disease. And so while it's not something that we can really claim for as a defined medical condition, it's something that certainly carries some risk with it. So thanks for bringing that up. I can't get rid of my ideas today to stop looking at analogies in the setting of broadcasting and diabetes. You have this kind of enduring vision of the citizens of the United Kingdom huddled around their radios listening to the important words of Churchill during the Blitz in the Second World War. And I've often heard or read that in this country, the greatest media outlet is in fact the radio. Mm -hmm. So something bringing together these isolated populations in South Africa and wherever you go in our great country, you know, the radio's on somewhere. You can drive through the Karoo and the radio's on in that small cafe. I guess what I'm saying is that diabetes can be an isolating condition to treat or can leave a person feeling isolated. We've also spoken about loneliness on this podcast. David, if we ask you to put on your professional hat at this point in time, you know, with so much media now and uncertainty regarding, you know, what represents the truth in this post-truth era, have you found it harder to make use of media for combating fake news, particularly, and we'll come to the healthcare components of that, because if you're on radio, it must be correct. Um, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think it's one of the foundation stones and values of our media group, honesty and truth. So we've always maintained as a radio and audio group that we need to have the facts and tell both sides of the story. And obviously, depending on the kind of business that it is, I mean, the stations that we own aren't talk radio stations, so there's not a lot of interaction with audiences in terms of debating politics and news and truth. The basis for what we stand for is we try not to be first with the news, but we try to get the news right. And when we've got the right information, we give it. So it's one of the strengths of our radio brands. And I think it's something that our audiences appreciate about the brands. With radio news, one doesn't need to fill up pages of print or documents. You know, they're normally quite short stories, 30 seconds, with sometimes audio bites to back up the sound. And now with the internet and the websites that we have for our brands, they're able to give more detailed information, the, the bigger, longer story, and put it out there. And even in some cases, we go as far as to create podcast series, you know, on various matters one would be, for example, OFM has done a series on Tabo Besta. It's just strange, but people love crime. And we found that even in the podcasting space, crime, suspense, drama, but of all of that stuff, you know, almost like the squad cars of the 1970s. They love it on podcast form. And it's one of the favorite areas that people dial in. But yeah, we go for the truth and we stand by that. And we're not always going to be first with the news. I think the other important point that we have as a strength is that our brands are very localized. So when you're in Bloemfontein or you're interested in what's going on in the Free State or in the Northern Cape, 
OFM has always got their ears, eyes, and everything else on the button, and they know exactly what's going on. So if you see some black smoke in say, CBD or there's a traffic jam, <laughs> even if people don't always listen to OFM as their favorite station, mm. they would go there for news because it's credible, reliable, speaks the truth, and it will give them the news that they might not get on a national station that's not really uh, interested in Central South Africa. And the same goes for Algoa. So we have that ability to be hyper-local and that's the strength that one has to zone in on. And just like you, I mean, I think this is a good example of zoning in on diabetes. You know, this particular podcast is all about diabetes. My message to any broadcaster, not just to you guys, is consistency. If you're able to achieve consistency in your broadcast and on the topics, I call it vanilla ice cream. You know, it's probably <laughs> the most consistent thing in the world. We all don't mind a bit of vanilla ice cream in our life, but from time to time, we do want some chocolate sprinkles or some cherries or some chocolate sauce or whatever it might be, or some caramel. And that's good. So hopefully I'll be the caramel on your vanilla ice cream today. But certainly I think part of the successful road that we've adopted as broadcasters in our group, consistency is definitely one of those things and the truth. Yeah. I certainly think you will bring a different topping to our series. You're the first guest that we've had who has type 2 diabetes. So it's a great addition to the content we've had over the past few months. David, in your journey with type 2 diabetes, you had spoken about the initial struggles, diagnosis and that transition, the early cycling through various medications, the ultimate adoption of the digital technology. But there's another chapter to your management of diabetes that I don't think, Michael, we've had discussed on this podcast before. And it's really something worthwhile taking on board because of itself, it has a revolutionary component in the broader picture of diabetes management. Thank you, doctor. I mean, yes, I mean, I'll just talk to it quickly if I may. When I came to Johannesburg, I was on the back of completing a half Ironman in Durban. Nice. So part of my ongoing wrestling with type 2 diabetes was lifestyle. And whilst I started becoming much fitter, I was still eating badly. I'm going to blame my mom for all the cakes and, and all the oily foods that she gave us. But <laughs> I became addicted to that. And for me, it was always the easy way out to grab some chips or sweets or whatever it might be. So when I got to Johannesburg, I moved to the CDE clinic and joined Dr. Landau. And I think we had close to four years of a journey together. But unfortunately, during that time, I slowly, and it was largely, I mean, it's not to blame on COVID, but I think I became inactive during COVID, completely inactive for that time frame. Had many bras on my gas bra and consumed probably a little bit more alcohol than I should have. <laughs> Whiskey with soda, which I always thought was not so bad for you. But uh, I think all the panic around COVID and the business and how we were losing revenue, I think those worries just added up. We as a society became inactive, which is where the whole digital upside came in our world. But I put on a bit of weight, uh, tried to go the diet route, but effectively uh, was spiraling a little bit out of control. I think, doctor, you'll recall that I think we had a meeting at one point and you said, well, you've given me every medication other than insulin. I think I I'm probably going to put it across differently. Maybe you can do a better job of it. But I'd used up most of the tablets that was available to me and we were looking at insulin as the next phase. And I had been exploring the option of speaking to Prof Tess van der Merwe, who's based at Waterfall. 
once again, my initial journey was <laughs> shortcut to heaven, you know, which was my philosophy, probably for the wrong reason. Again, looking at it as the way out of this problem that I'd created. And I did speak to our doctor here and we got onto the same page eventually. Mm-hmm. My sugar numbers were going up and I'd put on weight and I was 124 kilograms. So I'm now 84, but I was 124 at the time. I went through quite extensive testing, got the support of my doctor and my partner, and we went through a whole battery of tests. There's quite a, a lot of costs involved in this, so I was very fortunate that not only did I have some savings, but you know my medical was sufficient to cover the procedure that I ended up having. But in terms of the testing and the blood testing, we picked up that I was literally, I had just about everything What do you call the conditions, doctor, you will be able to tell me? The metabolic syndrome, to bring it all together. Yeah, absolutely. So I was obese, 124. I had high cholesterol, which you were treating me for. I had type 2 diabetes, getting to the point of using insulin. My blood pressure was elevated. I was sleeping with a sleep apnea machine. And with the increase in weight, I found out that I had a fatty liver. I was lethargic, unfit. And they even said there was some possibility that I could have had a slight heart attack in the reports that were given to me. Mm. So I was really getting to the end of my tether and I was fearing for my life, to say the least. So when I entered the process with Professor Tess van Amerva, we kind of did the journey from there. I initially went into a phase where all my medication was removed except for insulin. And I still recall visiting you in, I think it was just late December before you went on holiday, Doc. And it was like a whole thing of even my sugar numbers were going up because of the new treatment that she had been giving me, which was a short-term downside. But I mean, I was fearful of the numbers and (laughs) you gave me some extra instant insulin that was going to level everything out. But at the end of the day, I ended up going through dietitians and psychologists the professor. The journey started in November 21. Our operation I eventually had in January 22. And yeah, it's a serious operation. I have not briefed myself on all the technical words, but at the end of the day, I got through it. Wonderful. I think psychologically, it's a far bigger test than anything else. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people go into this process, particularly people who are overweight, go into it. And then obviously it is a fix, but it has many psychological challenges that I faced. And I always wondered why we needed to see a psychologist as part of the process. But now that I've done it, I've realized that the psychology is probably the hardest. And, you know, there's a song, Michael and Doctor, that I really like by Christopher called The Head and the Heart. And it's about a guy who falls in love and he's not quite sure whether he is in love or not, or it's just a pretty girl that he's kind of having a short-term thing with. But for me, it became a struggle between the head and the stomach. So my stomach is obviously a lot smaller now than it used to be. I've lost around about 40 kilograms. But my whole eating style food that I used to love, I can't eat or don't like anymore. So there's been many changes, but for the good. From a health perspective, I always said that the weight loss was going to be a bonus for me. I wanted to get over my comorbidities was the word I was looking for earlier. So all of those things I've kind of ticked except type 2 diabetes. So I mean, I've got to a point now where my cholesterol is normalized, my blood pressure is normalized. I no longer sleep with an apnea machine, obviously, 
I had hernias, I had ulcers in my stomach, <laughs> fatty livers gone. So it's actually a miracle in a sense. I feel like I've been given a new lease on life. Sure. The only medication other than vitamins that I'm now on is Lantus. I take eight units once a day in the evening. So that's kind of my current status. My latest sugar readings, they average around about 66.2. So you can see it's a lot more controlled, but I'm feeling really on top of the world. I have a better self-image. I'm more confident. The diabetes is still there. And yeah, but I mean, ultimately, I think the management thereof has been a lot more controlled from my side too. And I'm really trying to look after myself. But doctor, you probably want to add your own medical side to this because I think the important thing is, is that this is not a, an operation for everyone. There are costs involved, enormous costs at some point. And every time we do checks and testing, there's quite a lot of ongoing maintenance costs, blood tests every six months and a detailed blood test. So there is a price that comes with it. Not everyone will be able to go that route, but based on your doctor's support and guidance, there is conversation to be had there. Thanks for that, David. I think you had spoken about the hyperlocality of the OFM broadcasting network. And I think to an extent, diabetes is exactly that. Your experience with diabetes was this particular path. Your experience with medication and insulin and a surgical procedure may differ vastly from a person who's perhaps only on a single tablet of metformin or glucophage per day. Nonetheless, everybody's walking that journey. Nobody wants their diabetes. They've previously had a condition of prediabetes if they've been already diagnosed, transitioning into diabetes, and in many cases after gastric bypass surgery, a remission. Important to recognize that the challenges remain fairly consistent across the board. And I think David speaks to challenges that have been shared amongst our studio guests also with type 1 diabetes in terms of their day-to-day components. David, I'm glad you brought up the psychological preparation and journey with that kind of surgery being almost paramount. It's a well-known clinic that you went to for your bariatric or so-called metabolic surgery because it actually does change so many physiological processes within the body. How did you feel about the preparation in retrospect? Looking back, do you feel that you were given the right kind of preparation for the journey? Um, 100%, you know. I guess in hindsight, one looks back at the journey and you can always probably change or maybe look at it now and say, oh, maybe I should have spoken more. Maybe I should have checked more. But I mean, I think an operation of that extent does require a lot of self-evaluation, homework. Mm -hmm. And really, I was feeling like I was knocking on heaven's door. Not the heaven you envisioned. Yeah. And with a long-term diabetes journey at that point, I started losing hearing. I was wearing even hearing aids. Sight was slightly affected. So diabetes does eventually creep in in different ways. And because I had already established the worst possible list Mm -hmm. of comorbidities Mm -hmm. that one could have, I was, you know, I was really becoming quite fearful. And so, yeah, it was a journey that I embarked on. They are very professional and I spent a lot of time in meetings going through. But as I said to you, I think, and I've said it to them as well. So it's not something that I've hidden from even my doctor's team at Waterfall is the fact that I think as a patient, initially the focus was all about the dieting and you eventually obviously prepare for the operation by going onto liquids. And I lost about 14 kilos of my excessive weight even before the surgery took place. But I think psychologically, I believe that you need to spend more time seeing the psychologist. Mm -hmm. You know, even though it was probably in the region of five times, it's a roughly 30 minute session 
And there's probably a lot that one could really go through to understand it. And just like I've always wondered about male gynecologists giving ladies advice on whatever the issue might be, I think it's quite important that people that have gone through these procedures somehow need to give back, Mm -hmm. which is something that I've offered at no charge, you know, give advice. Because I think psychologically, it's not a walk in the park. You know, when you technically have your last supper, it is your last supper because (laughs) you literally go into a long phase of liquids, pre-op liquid diet, post-op liquid diet. And once you've had the operation, you're not going to ever eat the way you used to eat. And the funny thing is my stomach might be the size of a banana now, but the truth is my head still says I can finish a rack of ribs or a large pizza with ease. Sure, you can't. And that's something that you would wrestle with. And I came out of the liquid phase of my diet to start eating slowly but surely again solid food. And I would go with family to a famous restaurant in South Africa where the kids can go and have fun and sing happy birthday. And I would make jokes that were actually the truth. And I would say, can I have the kiddies menu? (laughs) Because technically, that was all I was capable of eating at that point. And even now, I mean, I can never, never, never finish a normal meal that someone else is eating at the table. So I do take a lot of takeaways from a restaurant home. And it's a psychological struggle. Mm. I went through a lot of time and effort apologizing to clients who were sitting opposite me saying, aren't you enjoying the food? Or the chef would say, why aren't you having the omelet? And I would say, I'm full now. And they don't get it. And you can't really sit with strangers or in private and share every intimate aspect of your life. But I think there is a bigger need for psychological advice and ongoing treatment around that. Thanks for highlighting that, David. We're going to take a short break. We have our next SA Diabetes Advocacy message for this week. Let's take a listen. We'll catch you on the other side. SA Diabetes Advocacy works on several advocacy projects that are spread across the different types of diabetes, as well as across private and public healthcare. We work with diabetes advocates on these projects to ensure that we are tackling some of the biggest issues that people living with diabetes are facing in South Africa. A key issue related to people living with type 2 diabetes is the common side effect of diarrhea of regular metformin. But long-acting metformin, which eliminates the side effect, isn't often available in the public sector. For those who need it, this medication can be life-saving, as it means they'll continue taking their medication. Many stop taking their medication because they feel too ill from the side effects. SA Diabetes Advocacy is currently assessing the local burden of metformin intolerance with the view of lobbying the Department of Health to allow for the use of long-acting metformin in the public sector for those that are experiencing severe side effects of regular metformin. This project is currently in the early stages of development. For more information on projects that SA Diabetes Advocacy is working on, please visit www.diabetesadvocacy.org.za. Michael, that was a very practical message we heard from SA Diabetes Advocacy this week, knowing how widely used metformin or glucophage is in the day-to-day clinical practice. As our studio guest Dave Tiltman alluded to, it was part of the treatment he was fundamentally on at the outset of his diabetes. And in fact, there may be an appropriate place for the use of metformin in people with prediabetes. But that's something highly personal and needs to be discussed with your healthcare team. Mm, mm. When I started this conversation today, Michael, and it's interesting how everything seems to dovetail here today, we spoke about these associated autoimmune conditions and the emotions that it brings up. And we also could include at that point in time, the role of the psychologist and the support. We've spoken about Rosemary Flynn's really groundbreaking book on the support for parents and young children and teens, as well as Dave Tilton recognizing the additional support that could be, has been laid upon those who choose to go for the surgical bypass type of procedure. 
Dave, you alluded to the radio stations that you manage not necessarily being within a talk space. How does that fit into the written word or the social media space? Is that something you, like us non-digital natives, had to familiarize ourselves with? Are you comfortable in the social media zone? Are you on Twitter yourself and Facebook? And do you have a good active LinkedIn profile? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think if one wants to be in business now and into the future, it's critical that you get to grips with it. I always look at my dad, who's now close to 90, and he never even commenced the digital journey, unfortunately. So he never used the computer in his life, and nor does he even use a mobile phone, which is extremely frustrating. But for us, I mean, I think growing up in the 80s, we would have thought that we were now going to be tweeting and doing the like and sending emails to each other um, um, and getting WhatsApp calls from our bosses at night. <laughs> so it's an interesting space. We definitely encourage all our staff, but obviously there is a whole negative aspect to social media that one has to be careful. And from a professional perspective, they say when you put a message out on social media, it's almost the same as putting a billboard up on the M1 between Santon and the CDE clinic. So you've got to be careful that when you put a message out into the big world, that it is something and it's done professionally because it can come back to bite you. Our businesses are all moved in that space. The radio stations were a lot slower. I think radio people always wanted to be radio people, but now they're slowly but slowly moving in the digital side. All the brands have got the digital platforms that you need. You know, if it's not WhatsApp, it's Telegram. They're all on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. The two stations that we own outright are following the basic route, but MoneyWeb, as an example, is a digital business. They're very strong on apps and websites. Their website is massive. So that's where the revenue opportunity is moving slowly but surely. We're fortunate that radio is a strong ally with the digital space. So we're lucky that as much as the print sector has seen a complete fall off in the digital era, radio is still surviving. I think the younger audiences are consuming audio more than ever. They won't call it radio. I think the devices that we grew up tuning into have all moved. But I think that, you know, they're still listening to audio products, which is catch-up radio, podcasting. And they will still have favorite radio stations, but they're no longer seeing it as a radio station on their dial. They don't understand the word radio. They really just consume it wherever, whenever, and however they like. I did a presentation recently where the number one electronic gadget in our time is, believe it or not, headphones. The headphone is something that, besides the mobile phone, everyone has them. And you just have to watch local taxi near my place in Rosebank, and everyone gets off their headphones headphones in, they're listening on the buses, on the trains, in the cars. The car systems have changed from radios to multi-dimensional systems. We can stream. So I think, yeah, we try to be on top of it. And my last point is we're launching, which is very exciting. It's an app, but we're calling it Listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, Listen. Listen is an audio app, and it's going to be launched within the next 30 days. It's currently with Google and Apple for approval. And it's going to be streaming all of our brands and the brands that we sell, plus a few others, including some Namibian radio stations. We've also got the Citizen newspaper, which I've convinced to go digital. So they've even got a vertical on the new player that I'm launching, which is all the news. You can basically read it digitally and also they're moving into podcasting. So, you know, hopefully soon we'll be launching that. And and I'm really looking forward to adding some extra and unique podcasts and playlists in there. And certainly this series with yourself and and the doctor, I'm certainly keen to get it onto the Listen app as soon as possible so that we can hear you guys every week doing some good work. Wonderful. Dave, from a media perspective, you've had many years in the industry crafting messages for your communities. 
If we look at diabetes in South Africa, it's the number one killer of women, number two killer overall. Two thirds of South Africans have some form of dysglycemia. We talked about prediabetes earlier on. Nine out of 10 South Africans desire as their ideal body image to be, in the words of the study, fat. That means carrying excess body fat. How do we address this from a media perspective? We've talked about so many people being connected through their headphones while they're traveling, walking, whatever. How do we craft a message about diabetes to get through to the population of what diabetes is and how we should be approaching it, both from lifestyle community perspectives and treatment perspectives, and also the health professional community to help them understand how serious this condition is? And given your experience with type 2 diabetes, what do you think? It's a very good question. It probably has multifacets. Mm. So people living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes are obviously all age groups across the country and all income brackets. So I guess at the end of the day, it's not a one message for all approach. Sure. I'm also sure, and I have seen this before, there's an annual day which is highlighting diabetes, but I'm sure you'll agree that one day yeah, is not sufficient. Not nearly enough. I'm sure there's a body that does that. And the critical point would be for them to take that to a new level. Social media is great. I think getting podcasts like yourself and even other ones at the lower income bracket, reaching radio stations through the SABC. If you look at their audiences and they are public broadcaster, which means they cover from the cradle to the grave in terms of their programming. And that was an old style programming. The commercial radio stations are very much niched into age bracket. You know, most of the stations in South Africa are 24 to 49 and that's their target market. And then they just change the music or the talk. But I think the SABC is the best place to start getting the message out to the masses there's public broadcasting, there's African language stations, every language in our country has a national radio station. And they're always looking for programming, quality um, information to share. And they have a mandate to do that as well. So if I was in the space of marketing the overall diabetes message or carving it out in South Africa, I would certainly look at forming a strong alliance with the SABC head of radio and then carving it out into all the different language stations. So there's probably 12 of them and getting those messages recorded and changed on a regular basis and having talk shows, three minutes. Those radio stations are all keen to get content and they're keen to give their audiences information that they would seek. And as I said, it's from the cradle to the grave. So they have the interest of the broader community in every single language. So you could actually carve out one message and then translated through a system to using their broadcasting network. And most of the radio stations through the National Association of Broadcasters has what they call a PSA. So even though there's commercial stations and public broadcasting, the PSA is actually a public service announcement. So the Diabetes Foundation or whatever it might be called can create content that can be turned into PSAs, which don't cost money, which the stations are all prepared to give airtime. So that's a radio space. Mm -hmm. I'm sure television has a similar approach because they also work through the association of broadcasters and then social media is really just about building audiences and marketing and you know if i can make a difference to diabetes in south africa or the world by putting your podcast on my player and people might not come to my player for your podcast initially but people like to consume and they will scroll and they will listen to something that they like and then they will see at the bottom there's a section on podcasting and after they've listened to the rugby podcast, they might see diabetes and they go, oh, 
I've just been diagnosed as a type two. Let me see what Dr. Landau and Michael have got to say. So it's in that way that we can generate interest and cover. Mm. And the more spaces that you operate in, you know, if it's a YouTube channel, sharing it with your friends, you slowly but surely will get the message out. But it's a complex story, but everything is digital. And with the right help and support, digital is a lot easier to achieve a mass audience. It starts off slowly, but once you've got and I think this is the other point. There's a new buzzword which has been around for a couple of years called influencers. <laughs> influencers are generally famous people, celebrities, sportsmen, and others with diabetes to either do video casts like this or be your guest or do short public service announcements. And they've got thousands and thousands of followers on their different sites. That could be a fantastic way to reach new audiences. But I think the SABC is the best place for mass audience. Niche audiences are commercial radio through the NAB and television through the NAB and social media would be through, I would say, influencers and these kind of podcasts getting out on more players and more sites. Great, Dave. Thanks for some wonderful tips there. I'm sure our advocacy partners, SA Diabetes Advocacy and Sweet Life Diabetes Community and ourselves will take a lot of those to heart. And what we're seeing there is that the world of social media and media is a bit like diabetes, highly complex. Thanks for your insights this week. It's an absolute pleasure. And thanks for inviting me. I'm really open to either assisting any patient with my journey and giving them the story and if it can help anyone else or if there's a bit of a shortcut, I'm happy to help and share that with your CDE community as well. Wonderful. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you for joining us on this really insightful podcast we've had today. We've heard a journey from the early years of radio right up until this digital content. And we've heard an equally personal journey of Dave's diabetes moving from the uncertainty around the original diagnosis right up to his current excellent state of health. Bear in mind, he's worked hard at this. Mm. He has spoken a number of times about the role that support and those cheerleaders on the side have had in his diabetes journey. And with that, I hope that your week ahead is a good and healthy one. We look forward to bringing you more good content in the week ahead. And please don't forget, as Michael alluded to, if you're looking for one of those 10 giveaways, email us on podcast at cdediabetes.coza. From me, Stan Landau, speak soon. Thank you, Stan. And thank you again, Dave Tiltman, for joining us. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. We'll be with you again next week. Over and out from us. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important, specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes... The health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, 
regulations, guidelines, and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap. Yay!